What if it were true that you were born, lived your entire life, died, and carried on living under a permanent, inescapable, cradle-to-grave and beyond, round-the-clock surveillance? Who wants this to be true? That's what I want. Who wishes this was true? Who desires that to be the case? What could be more hellish? It's the definition of unfreedom. It is, it's the origin of totalitarianism. Welcome to the Anti-Theist Atheist Podcast, where every week we feature prominent speakers with their arguments against religion. Remember to subscribe and share. This season, each episode is showcasing opening speeches in religious debates with Christopher Hitchens. Today, we feature Christopher's 20-minute opening remarks in a debate with Shmuley Botich, recorded in the year 2004 at the McCaw Center for Spiritual Judaism in New York City. Hitchens argues against the ontological religious argument from design and points out the differences between those of us who think they know to those of us who admit they don't. He makes compelling points about the unwanted aspects of the masochistic Abrahamic religions and why Pascal's wager argument is actually an appeal to immorality, further begging the question, if the heavenly existence described by the religious really were true, would we actually want it to be true? He also poses the question of whether religion makes people more ethical still using the relevant example of the immensely difficult progress barely trying to be made toward peace in the so-called Holy Land, seemingly forever torn apart by three different religious ideologies and claims. Without any further throat clearing, here is the opening speech from Christopher Hitchens. And remember, love all people, hate bad ideas. I'm going to use up 20 minutes for this argument. I do not yet know. It's more or less a five-minute job, I think, to demolish the, um, the deadly virtues <laughs> before one gets on to the sins. But I suppose we can't hop over the ontological question, can we? In other words, one must begin in some way by saying, is there any truth to any of this at all, any, any ground for rational or humane belief? Um, there's some well-known objections to this, which I won't pain you by over-rehearsing, but all arguments for the existence of God, certainly for a God who has an ethical property, uh, but for a God at all, uh, I must add and stipulate, are essentially arguments from design. There appears to be some sort of order to the universe. There appears to be some kind of rhythm to the seasons. There appears to be some point, indeed, at least from our own point of view, in our own nature. How could this happen purely by accident, um, it was Bishop Paley, I think, uh, in his natural philosophy, who first said, if you find, if you're a cannibal or a savage, I, I excuse the expression, I hope you will too, uh, an ignoramus, a peasant, you find a watch on a beach, you may not know what the watch is for, but you can tell it's not a rock or a vegetable. It's for something and somebody made it. Who is this watchmaker? Um, the objection, I dare say, is equally well known to all of you. Um, it leads to an infinite regression. Uh, who designed the watchmaker then? And who designed the watchmaker's watchmaker? It gets you actually nowhere at all. Even if you do believe it, it will only take you further back into what is mysterious. And I'm going to stress this point more than once, I think, what is essentially unknowable about the cosmos and the origin, not just of species and of life, but of, of matter um, itself. And 
in this journey, this search for the infinite regression for the watchmaker's watchmaker, the origins of watchmaking and watchmakers, <coughs> we are, I think, permanently in danger of surrendering to our own solipsism. How can anything, in other words, that leads to ourselves, our wonderful selves, be pointless or random? How can that be? The resistance to this has taken many forms. It used to take a resistance to the form of the simple proposition that the sun revolves um, around the earth instead of the other way around. Excuse me, not a simple opposition to this, a simple affirmation of it. Of course, the earth is the center and man is the center of that. How could it be otherwise? We are God's children. He wouldn't arrange for us to speculate on anything as cruel as the possibility that it wasn't all on our behalves. Uh, but increasingly, we aren't even in the lucky position of those who condemned and threatened to torture Galileo. We don't even have an idea of who this watchmaker might be. We're being asked, in effect, to surrender ourselves permanently to someone whose identity we can't even speculate about. And that's why it annoys me, and I hope some of you too, that those who say they have faith so often present themselves with a shrug, with modesty, with humility. Uh, pardon me, uh, don't mind me at all, I'm just doing God's will. I'm on an errand for the creator. <laughs> just as, I just invite you to consider carefully, ladies and gentlemen, comrades, how modest is that? Not terribly. And is there not therefore a moral flaw, as well as the self-evident scientific and logical ones, at the very beginning of the argument of those who say that faith is something worth having instead of what I maintain it to be, the surrender of the only thing, our curiosity, our irony, our skepticism, our willingness to inquire, our willingness to doubt ourselves, our willingness to come to conclusions that are not welcome to us. The only faculty, in other words, that distinguishes us from those beasts who can't tell a hawk from a handsaw or a watch uh, from a turnip. Uh, more recently, uh, the arguments become, again, I hope I don't uh, patronize you with the obvious, uh, rather more complex. What design exactly? We used to think we knew roughly, okay, you can tell what the solar system is like, you can predict its movements, it, it has some kind of organization to it, fine. Can this be for nothing? Good question. Who's gonna say this about what we now know about the cosmos? All we know now, the most we know, is how little we know about it. It doesn't act in a predictable way. How does curved time, how does the black hole, how does the event horizon fit into this argument from design? The answer is plain, it doesn't fit at all. It's completely incongruent with it. Everything we know, in other words, is arranged against the way we feel. Well, which is gonna give way, the thought or the feeling, the emotion or the intellect? The religious have their answer ready-made. I don't, that's the big difference between us, I submit. In Genesis, uh, which is a book held in common for no reason I can understand, by all monotheisms, <laughs> there are, for example, no microorganisms. When the non-human kingdom is created, there are mi no microorganisms in it. Microorganisms are very important. They can kill you for one thing. They're very intricately designed for another. Religious belief went through various phases about this when we, no one knew they were there. Uh, they used to say, well, if there's plague, God must want people to, to die. Except why don't they all die? Or why do some good people die and some bad people not? As an epidemiological observation, not very brilliant. <laughs> um, sometimes in bad moments they say, well, the plague, the, obviously there's plague because the Jews are putting poison in the water. The rabbi knows this history very well, as no doubt some of you do too. Uh, there are no marsupials in Genesis. They didn't even know what animals there were in Australia. There are no dinosaurs in Genesis. It's just that they are in creation. What am I making uh, by way of an observation here? The simplest possible one. 
what are the odds that God created man when stacked against the odds that man created God? I submit that there is only one possible answer to that question. Of the millions and millions of false gods that have been created, is it likely that they were all equal perceptions of the same truth, from the Aztecs to the Buddhists, or that they're all equally improvised creations by man? Again, there's no possible way of disputing that proposition and making it even seem equal. None. Uh, the, there is a very, very small outside chance that of all these gods, gods one only, only one could be the correct one. This actually is the view of all true adherents of all monotheism. The other ones, no, they're a bit fraudulent. But ours, ah, now this is something to kill for. Um, or perhaps, let's say, make it more compassionate, to die for. Uh, you can work out the difference there. Um, and we're living at a time and speaking at a time and studying and reflecting at a time, ladies and gentlemen, when a page of Stephen Hawking is far more awe-inspiring than anything in Genesis or Exodus. Think about what is involved in the event horizon, the point where time begins and ends, the point where the black hole starts, the point where matter and light disappear. Consider it carefully. One of Hawking's friends says if he, could, if he, if he knew he was going to die and he knew when, he would want to die by going to the edge of the event horizon and tipping over within, because in theory then, you could see the past and the future. Except, of course, you wouldn't have enough time. But that's innate in physics, not innate in the unfairness of life. Think about that and compare it to the burning bush. <laughs> or some other sinister fairy tale. Of course we don't live without awe. We don't live without a sense of the majesty and, and, and tremendousness of, of our universe. And nor do we live in contempt for ourselves. But we don't mistake the fairy tale for the real or inspiring stuff. We don't, we don't throw away the truffle and chew on the wrapper till our mouths go dry, in other words. So there's no reason to make any assumption about God or his existence or his design or his will. It's neither a necessary assumption nor a useful one nor, I think, a moral one. And this means, if I'm correct, and if you follow me this far, that a very important conclusion follows. I will stand before you, I just have, and say there are things I can't know and don't know. There is awe-inspiring and majestic stuff going on where I don't presume to pronounce or to know. I'm happy with this conclusion. I don't mind not knowing. I don't mind submitting it to curiosity and inquiry and skepticism. But what can we say of those who do say they know? Who say they know what, not just who God is, but what his will is? And not just in the macro stuff about the non-creation of marsupials, for example, but in um, what to eat, and on what day, and what to wear, and what tactics to adopt between the sheets. This is what the holy believe they are entitled to do to you with this warrant from the unknowable divine. The one group that loses this argument before it begins must be those who say they know. They can be dispensed with. We can begin only from those who are willing to subject themselves to uncertainty and to skepticism, and the religious rule themselves out of that argument, as it were, a priori. The phrase mind-torched whack jobs, that's in the introduction to this paper this evening, naturally upset me very much. I hate to be um, offensive, um, or to see religion lampooned. That's why I didn't call my book on Mother Teresa Sacred Cow, though I'll always somehow be sorry. <laughs> uh, Something in me will always feel sorry that I didn't do that. Um, but why is it? Perhaps we should ask ourselves. Uh, belief in religion does not make you a mind-torched whack job. But the appeal of this extraordinary pressure from the supernatural and the unknowable and the numinous 
and the distortions it imposes does seem to have a tremendous influence on mind-torched whack jobs. It's very seldom you come across a mind-torched whack job who isn't hearing voices and claiming to have instructions from God. Now, here's what I submit to you, and I do it uncynically, I hope. How can we tell that they're not telling the truth? How can we sort out their claim to have heard voices and be given divine instructions from anyone else's? Mr. Abu Musad al-Zakawi, who's currently trying to take a very important country into a spiral of misery and poverty and shame and fascism, has, I, I was thrilled to see, renamed his jihad organization Monotheism and Jihad. How can I tell, how can anyone in this room tell whether his claim to be speaking Quranic truth is any better or any worse than anyone else's? For me, it's an open question. It's unverifiable, it's unprovable, it's unfalsifiable. These are all tests of the weakness of an argument, of course, but anyone who grants the first premise that it may be known, that it may be argued from holy books, that we may have divine instructions, is in no position to tell him that they're right and he's wrong. The only way of winning this argument is to consider all those claims on the same footing, on the same basis, and reject them, not in turn, but collectively, seriatim. The, uh, how much am I trespassing on my allotted time? You're great. You have 10 minutes. That's very good if you say so. And the 10-minute bit is good, too. Um, there's the Sado element in religion, in other words, and the Masso element, if you will. I'll start with the masochistic. Who wouldn't? Uh, <laughs> they say, the Muslim says, Islam means surrender. It says, I'm, I feel just lucky to be able to say to God, do what you will with me. I'm unworthy. You were good enough to create me from a clot of blood. I am less than the dust. I surrender to your will, they say. The Christians mire themselves and attempt to mire others in a, in a swamp of guilt and shame. They apologize for their existence, born in sin, wretched sinners to begin with. No invention, no quality, no, no rights of independence, no, no triumph of standing on two feet and using the brain. No, no, wretched, scum, condemned, born into a losing struggle, riffraff groveling, saying, thank God someone had the, was nice enough to be tortured to death 2,000 years ago without my permission so that I will live forever. Abject, serfdom, inviting it, self-hatred, misery, Judaism, rending the clothes, asking to atone, groveling and, and, and heaping dust on the, on the shoulders, and, and indeed praying uh, with thanks, if, if you're a male Jew, that you're not a female one. <laughs> Abject peasantry. That's the masochistic bit. I find it more unattractive than I'll have time to say, but I hope you'll get a rough idea of how I feel about it. But okay, suppose someone thinks, okay, someone had, was good enough to die for me. I owe him, I'll live this abject, shuffling life. Fine. Wouldn't it make you happy if you thought that someone had gone to all that trouble to save you and you were saved? Wouldn't you feel good? I don't know what it's like to think this nonsense, but suppose I did, I suppose it would be like being in love. That it would be a wonderful secret that you had that even if the IRS came for you or whatever it might be, they couldn't take this away. You would be, you'd be happy with it. It would be something to you, it would be real. Does it make them happy? The question answers itself. They can't be happy until everyone else believes it too. <laughs> Is this a sign of moral security, comrades, or insecurity, would you say? To what length will they go or not go to make sure that everyone else believes it? Because then they feel, perhaps if everyone believed it, I, I might be right. <laughs> any length is the answer to that. Uh, ask any of them, any length. Uh, by their deeds, you can know them. Any length. This is dangerous stuff, in other words. It's not just foolish or untrue. It's positively dangerous. 
There's an attractive bit, but it's cynical. When they don't do the argument from design, they do the wager. That's Pascal, as I'm sure some of you know. We can't know if it's true or not. He's right about that. It's the only religious or ontological proposition that does begin from a correct premise, as a matter of fact. We don't know, but look, what if you bet it's true and you win? You might get who knows what. If you bet it's true and you, it's not true, what if you lost? Fine. This is the origin, as often with uh, theological and theocratic argument, it's the origin of secularism. Let me put it to you generously then, the other way around. Suppose I think it is true. Suppose I do believe there's a divine creator and supervisor. Don't, wouldn't I expect that he would um, approve of me more if when I was confronted with him I said, well, you didn't seem to provide any very persuasive evidence, and I didn't want to join the toadies and the serfs who just bet on you in the hope of uh, winning the lottery. So don't I, don't I, shouldn't I expect, if any of your ethics as alleged to true, slightly preferential treatment. I'm already beginning, of course, to cringe and grovel a bit, but you see where I'm going with it. This is my response to Pascal, at any rate. It's better than Bertrand Russell's much more pragmatic response. He was asked, um, well, what will you do if you rush it to the pearly gates and he's really there? And instead of saying what I would say, which is, I don't believe in her to begin with, he said, um, he'd say, oh, Lord, I don't think you quite gave us enough evidence. This, I think, would not cut it. Um, in the case of either a compassionate or an uncompassionate God. But if you don't do the argument from design and the, the self-evident nonsense of that, you have to do the self-evident immorality of the wager. In other words, this is not a reinforcement of ethics at all. It's not. It's an appeal to immorality, or at least amorality, the very most amorality, I would say. It is, it is an appeal to the, <clears throat> the most abject self-interest, and um, it doesn't deserve to be called by any other name. Now, I take a different position from all of these, and I'll briefly summarize it. I don't wish it was true. Many people, including many of my atheist friends, say it'd be nice if it was true, but I just don't believe it. There's no evidence for it. Sometimes that position is also called agnostic. We can't know. I say, thank God it isn't true. What if it, was tr what if it were true that you were born, lived your entire life, died, and carried on living under a permanent, inescapable, cradle-to-grave and beyond, round-the-clock, Surveillance. Who wants this to be true? That's what I want to know. Who wishes this was true? Who desires that to be the case? What could be more hellish? It's the definition of unfreedom. It is, it's the origin of totalitarianism. I've been to North Korea, for example, where you have the right as a North Korean to get up in the morning and go to bed at night praising the leader all day. Just like it says in the Bible, endless praise for the Lord all the time. We only get this at Christmas. <laughs> and not so bad well, some of us get other time, but it, it, there's no escaping. But you can, you, can, you can die in North Korea and get out of it that way. If you're very brave and very lucky, you can defect from North Korea. And, but if you are a believing Christian or Jew or Muslim, you can't. You want it to go on. You want, you want it never to stop, the chance to abase yourself at the feet of someone who only, it seems to me in a fit of absence of mind, created you at all. What kind of horror is this. So the only argument that I think one is left with, the only argument a self-respecting person can actually give his endorsement to is that of anti-theism, or one might say mesotheism, as opposed to the, the celestial Pyongyang that's offered us even by the uh, most gentle of our shepherds, or would-be shepherds. <coughs> Two minutes is all I need to round up. Some people say, well, it's, all, it's obviously all nonsense and so on, and some of it's rather sinister. And some of it is uh, a bit dangerous. But look, it, it's, people often behave better because of it. it. It's a way of inculcating ethics. 
Not everyone's going to do philosophy. Not everyone's going to do physics. You know, if they go to church, they'll hit them. All right, then. This is probably not the worst place <clears throat> to suggest the current uh, example. The exercises us all, I just take the one case, the Holy Land itself, the land of uh, Palestine, Israel. I once heard Albert Eben make a speech in this very city. He was then Israeli foreign minister saying, the great thing about this dispute is it's easy to solve. You don't always hear that, but it's true. Ever since the Balfour Declaration and before, it's been very clear. There are two populations roughly equivalent in size, not exactly, in the same territory with good claims to it. Partition, a share out. It could be done easily. Most Jews support it in America and in Israel. It is, officially at least, I, this is open to doubt in some ways, the view of the PLO. It's the view of the international community. It's certainly the view of many Palestinians. A two-state solution. Why is that impossible? A group of Messianic settlers who believe that if they can pull all Jews into Palestine from around the world and make them all convert to the right orthodoxy, the Messiah will come. They are opposed by a group of people who say, you're quite wrong in thinking God gave this land to the Jews. It's Absolutely untrue. In fact, we know to the contrary, he gave it to the Muslims. And you must all get out. And uh, your people must all either die or go home. They make progress difficult too. And I don't need to tell you what the other faces of Islamic Jihad are like. And then this country, a naturally compromising group of fundamentalist Christians who say, um, <laughs> let us prevent the Israelis from making the compromise they want because if Armageddon comes, then the Messiah, our Messiah, will come and he'll convert the Jews and murder all those who don't convert and all others who won't convert either. And that's the ideal solution. These three monotheisms have made life unbearable, unlivable in this small territory that they claim as holy. This must be the most prayed over, the most religious territory in our history. See what religion has done to that. And they're quite willing to have the life destroyed of everyone in this room on this proposition, any one of the three or in combinations. Not only willing to do it, but eager to do so. I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, with a record like this, uh, we have to begin using our brains a bit more. And we have to conclude, I think we are left with no other conclusion, that human emancipation, the story of human freedom, the story of our becoming upright and thoughtful uh, and courageous begins uh, where uh, religion leaves off. And the sooner we outgrow it, uh, the better. And the more we organize to defeat it, the healthier uh, we shall be. So I invite you to join me in this struggle, which I promise you will last the rest of your lives. <laughs> but will be worthwhile. Thank you. Yes.